One of the readings this morning is by Howard Nemiroff, September, the first day of school. My child and I hold hands on the way to school, and when I leave him at the first grade door, he cries a little, but is brave. He does not, he does let go. My selfish tears remind me how I cried before that door a life ago. I may have had a hard time letting go. Each fall, the child, the children must endure together what every child also endures alone, learning the alphabet, the integers, three dozen bits and pieces of a stuff so arbitrary, so preemptory, that words, that worlds invisible and visible bow down before it, as in Joseph's dream. The sheaves bowed down, and then the stars bowed down before the dreaming of a little boy. That dream got him such hatred of his brothers as cost the greater part of life to mend, and yet great kindness came of it in the end. A school is where they grind the grain of thought and grind the children who must mind the thought. It may be those two grindings are but one, as from the alphabet come Shakespeare's plays, as from the integers come Euler's law, as from the whole, inseparably, the lives, the shrunken lives that had not been set free by law or by poetry fantasy. But, that, but may they be. My child has disappeared behind the schoolroom door, and I should live to see his coming forth a life away. I know my hope, but do not know its form, nor hope to know it. May the fathers he finds among his teachers have a care of him more than his father could. How that will look, I do not know. I do not need to know. Even our tears belong to ritual. But may great kindness come of it in the end. Wedding cake. Once, on a plane, a woman asked me to hold her baby and disappeared. I figured it was safe, our being on a plane and all. How far could she go? She returned one hour later. Having changed her clothes and washed her hair, I didn't recognize her. By this time, the baby and I had examined each other's necks. We had cried a little. I had a silver bracelet and a watch. Gold studs glittered in the baby's ears. She wore a tiny white dress, leafed with layers, like a wedding cake. I did not want to give her back. The baby's curls coiled tightly against her scalp, another alphabet. I read, new, new, new. My mother gets tired. 
I'll chew your hand. The baby left my skirt crumpled, my lap aching. Now I'm her secret guardian, the little nub of dream that rises slightly but won't come clear. As she grows, as she feels, feels ill at ease, I'll bob my knee. What will she forget? Whom will she marry? He better check with me. I'll say once she flew, dressed like a cake between two doilies of cloud. She could slip the card into a pocket, pull it out. Already, she knew the small finger was funnier than the whole arm. So earlier this week, Tim Bardick sent me an email saying, I have this video that's on the topic of your sermon. And it is, and we are going to watch that now. Why should I pay higher taxes to pay for more preschool for other people's children? What needs to be understood is that when an early childhood program enables children to become more productive, more skilled as adults, that benefits everyone in the local economy. Everyone is interdependent in a modern economy. When other people's kids gain in skills, it actually increases the prosperity of everyone. For example, even if my skills are fine without preschool, I benefit from having more skilled coworkers. If my employer is better able to introduce new technologies because more workers are skilled, that will increase the competitiveness and profitability of my employer and make it much easier for that employer to afford paying me high wages. If some of the local suppliers to my employer have better skilled workers, those local suppliers will be able to supply a better quality product at a lower cost. So we can see that a local economy's skills and productivity reflect the skills of everyone in the local area, and that affects everyone's wages. It affects the competitiveness of local businesses in the national and international market. So, if we invest our tax dollars in other people's kids through programs such as preschool, we not only help those children, we also help everyone in the local economy because we're going to see faster job growth and we're going to see more wage growth. When early childhood programs increase people's skills, this benefits all workers. We're all in this together. There is no such thing as other people's children. We know this. It is part of our faith as Unitarian Universalists. If we believe that all have inherent worth and dignity and everything is interconnected, there can't be any such thing as other people's children. We can't divide children into ours and theirs. All children are ours. Each one is our responsibility, and we are called to create a world in which every person will grow old surrounded by beauty, embraced by love, and cradled in the arms of peace. What does this look like, and what does this mean? The belief that there is no such thing as other people's children permeates the culture here in Kalamazoo in ways that have surprised and delighted me in my first few months here. 
and I have several stories for you about this. Once upon a time, 151 years ago, and a few miles east of here in downtown Kalamazoo, there were four 14-year-old girls who loved Sunday school. They attended First Presbyterian right on Bronson Park. And one Sunday, they noticed that none of the kids who lived on the northern edge of town, in the woods and what is now the north side, ever came to church with them. They loved Sunday school so much that they thought every child should have access to this source of joy and meaning. Who cares if their parents were poorer or didn't have time to make the trek to First Presbyterian? These girls knew there was no such thing as other people's children. They knew they had to, under, had to share the truth as they understood it. And so one Sunday after church, they gathered up a bunch of hymnals and walked north. They, they set up a makeshift church in a clearing, putting planks across tree stumps to make pews. And they held their services and taught their lessons, often repeating what they heard just hours earlier. The girls often had to scare away wandering cows who, who came into their clearing. And they became quite skilled at teaching and at scaring away cows. The girls didn't tell their pastor or their parents what they were up to, and their Sunday school began to thrive. One day, several months later, the Sunday school superintendent noticed that a number of the hymnals regularly went missing and had a bit more dirt and other things on them than they really should of being inside all the time. A few weeks later, he noticed those 14-year-old girls gathering up the hymnals, and he decided to follow them. He walked across town to the clearing in the woods, not quite sure what to expect, and found a flourishing Sunday school program led by the four 14-year-old girls. There were about 30 children attending and a few of their parents. And this was quite a sight. It, this was nearly 100 years before the Presbyterians ordained women, but here were four teenage girls teaching the, the truth as they understood it to a crowd. Now, the superintendent could have responded in a number of ways. He could have taken back the hymnals. He could have been concerned about those girls associating with people from the other side of the tracks. He could have been worried about the aggressive cows. But he, too, believed that there was no such thing as other people's children, that all children deserve to learn about what is most important. He supported this new Sunday school, which came to be called the Mission Woods Sunday School. The people of First Presbyterian took up special collections to help the Sunday school and allow them to buy their own hymnals. That Sunday school grew and flourished, and 14 years later, they called their first pastor and renamed themselves North Presbyterian Church. First Presbyterian encouraged some of its members to go join the new church to help get that fledgling congregation off the ground to help them build a strong congregation that would serve other people's children for generations. First Methodist, First Congregational, and First Baptist did the same, encouraging some of their most committed members to go to that new church. So the next time you're passing by North Presbyterian Church on Burdick at Ransom, a block north of the Amtrak station, remember that it was founded by four 14-year-old girls who believe there is no such thing 
as other people's children. And another story. Meanwhile, a public high school had opened in Kalamazoo. Perhaps the founders or early participants in the gathering that became North Presbyterian attended that school. It was the only public school in Kalamazoo offering education beyond the eighth grade. And the school existed for 14 years with minimal complaints. Then, in 1873, just a year before the North Presbyterians called their first pastor, three of the biggest landowners in Kalamazoo filed a lawsuit to prevent the Kalamazoo School Board from funding the public high school with tax money. These men asserted that their obligation to other people's children lasted only through the eighth grade. If other people wanted to provide anything more than a basic education to their children, they should pay for it themselves. The suit went to the district court and then the Michigan Supreme Court where the school board won. They ruled that there was no such thing as other people's children, that it's to everyone's benefit for us to use tax money to pay for public schools. They used some of the same arguments based on economic self-interest that we heard from Tim Bardick in the video we showed earlier, as well as the fact that funding public high schools with tax money was not against the law. This public high school case out of Kalamazoo, sometimes just called the Kalamazoo case, didn't proclaim there is no such thing as other people's children only in Kalamazoo. The case took on national significance. In the years that followed, many other communities in many other states faced lawsuits about funding public high schools. And this early case was cited at the US Supreme Court as well as state Supreme Courts in California, Georgia, Idaho, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Louisiana, Maine, Minnesota, Mississippi, Nebraska, Nevada, North Dakota, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, and Wisconsin. The next time you're passing by the old Central High School on West Nedge at Vine, look for the historical marker that references the Kalamazoo case and celebrate the legal precedent that there is no such thing as other people's children. The next time you pass a public school, you can celebrate that in some very real ways, we as a society have decided that there is no such thing as other people's children, that all of us should grow old, surrounded by beauty, embraced by love, and cradled in the arms of peace. The Kalamazoo case and those that followed were decided by arguments related to economic self-interest and the fact that there were no laws prohibiting the funding of public high schools. Those are compelling arguments. As the late Minnesota Senator Paul Wellstone has said, we all do better when we all do better. That is especially true when it comes to funding programs for young children. The research shows us that a, do a dollar invested in high-quality preschool for children living in poverty saves taxpayers about $13 later in those kids' lives as the preschool attenders are more likely to graduate high school and have well-paying jobs at age 40 and less likely to commit crimes. That is all true, but it is not enough. If we were at a public meeting or a legislative hearing, Economic self-interest would be sufficient argument, but we are gathered in religious community. Policy outcomes matter to us, 
but so do values, so do ethical and religious commitments. Diane read earlier that it is our faith that each child born is one more redeemer. As Unitarian Universalists, we believe that every person, every child is important and deserving of love. We believe that every child is born one more redeemer. That is not limited to Ella, Weaver, DeForest, Ariana, and Alexandra, the little ones we dedicated ourselves to today. Each child born is one more redeemer. We believe that all children and all people are called to the work of redeeming the world. We are called to join our thoughts, words, and deeds together to make the world more beautiful, more just, less full of suffering, and more full of love. I've told good stories this morning about Kalamazoo, about how this is a community that has believed for in generations that there is no such thing as other people's children and has acted on that belief. And there are more stories like this that I could tell, including the story of the Kalamazoo Promise, the generous donors who provide scholarships to the graduates of the Kalamazoo Public Schools. This promise is changing lives in our communities. But we know that is not the whole story. The world is full of promise and also full of pain. We are not yet to the promised land. We have not yet fully lived into the belief that there is no such thing as other people's children. One of the areas of great pain in our community is the infant mortality rate. As many of you probably know, in Kalamazoo County, an African-American baby is four and a half times more likely to die before his or her or their first birthday. Four and a half times more likely to die in their first year of life. This is the highest infant mortality rate racial disparity in the state of Michigan. There are many reasons for this. Poverty, access to health care, and the mother's level of education. But those who study the persistence of racial disparities and in infant mortality rates believe that the disparity is also explained in significant part by racism. More education and more access to health care are only part of the problem. Studies show that black women with doctoral degrees are more likely to have their babies die in the first year of life than white women who didn't graduate from high school. Experts assert that infant deaths must be linked to the chronic stress of experiencing racism, that the chronic stress of racism is causing pregnancy complications, sicker babies, and is literally killing the littlest, most vulnerable children in Kalamazoo. Maybe we have decided that they are other people's children and we bear no responsibility. Maybe we think that they are all our children, that each one should grow old, surrounded by beauty, embraced by love, and cradled in the arms of peace, but we haven't yet figured out the way to fix this. If we believe that each child born is one more redeemer, if each night a child is born is a holy night, a time for singing, a time for wondering, a time for worshiping, 
then singing and wondering and worshiping are not enough. We are called to action. If we believe there is no such thing as other people's children, that, our chil- that all children are a collective responsibility, then our beliefs call us to action. We must continue to treat one another like the world's most sensitive cargo. We must continue to remember that each one of us holds the prayers, dreams, and breath of ancestors that came before. We must remember that each of us are lovers of life and builders of nations, seekers of truth and keepers of faith, makers of peace and the wisdom of ages. We must become or continue to be the secret guardians of babies dressed like wedding cakes we hold on airplanes, the secret guardians of other people's children. There isn't much good about a problem as intractable and complicated as infant mortality, a problem as intractable and complicated as creating a world in which there is no such thing as other people's children. The good thing about such a big problem is that there are so many ways to address it. If you are passionate about infant mortality, there are a number of initiatives here seeking to address it in Kalamazoo. Healthy Babies, Healthy Start, the YWCA, the Nurse Family Partnership, Healthy Families America, and others are working on this issue directly in our community. If your call is to work to reduce racism and the chronic stress it unleashes on so many in our community, members of this congregation are already doing great work on this issue through the Anti-Racism, Anti-Oppression, Multiculturalism Committee, affectionately known as AROMIC, Isaac, a congregation-based community organizing effort in Kalamazoo that People's Church is deeply involved in, has committed to working to reduce racism, educational disparities, and youth violence here over the next several years. And so many of you tutor at Lincoln School, showing some of the most vulnerable elementary schoolers in our community that they are deserving of love. There are probably dozens of other ways that you are acting to make sure there is no such thing as other people's children. So many of you have already appointed yourselves the secret guardians of the children in our community, holding firm to our faith that every child is deserving of love. Again, the story isn't perfect and the story isn't over, but we have the power and the opportunity to carry on the legacy of those that came before and create a community where there is no such thing as other people's children. May we have the passion of the 14-year-old girls who founded North Presbyterian Church. May we have the commitment of those who defended public high schools before the Michigan Supreme Court. And may we loudly proclaim that each child is one more redeemer and that there is no such thing as other people's children until everyone grows old, surrounded by beauty, embraced by love, and cradled in the arms of peace. May it be so. May we make it so. And amen.